Hey, welcome to the Christmas edition of More Than Bread. If you think about it, and what we celebrate at Christmas is holy, amazing, right? The Word became flesh, John says. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and lived amongst us. And in his gospel, he literally says, he pitched his tent in our midst, <laughs> and we beheld the glory of God. In other words, we will never be closer to gazing into the very face of God than we are when our eyes just cannot get enough of Jesus. So my name is Dan. I love Jesus. I like Christmas. I love my family and my church, and and I love the Word because I love pondering Jesus, the one who is called the Word. And and I'm your host for this Advent anticipating scripture diving pause this episode of More Than Bread. This is episode number 209 and day number six of our Advent series. It's a Christmas pause, an Advent series. We, we've already invested a, a few episodes looking at Christmas previews, prophecies in the Old Testament, and now we'll spend a few episodes in Matthew, a few in Luke, and then the Apostle John will close us out. In the last episode, we looked at Isaiah, the Christmas prophet of light. That's how I think of him. I mean, in fact, other than Psalm 23, all of our Old Testament Christmas previews on More Than Bread have been in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 and 9 and 61 and 64. Uh, today at church, it was Isaiah 58. And, and there are, yes, there are other Old Testament previews of Christ, Samuel, Hosea, Micah, Daniel, the Psalms, Malachi, even the book of Genesis. But in my mind, Isaiah is the best. He He is the he is the Christmas prophet in so many different ways. In this episode, we're going to hang out in Matthew's gospel. We're going to start at the beginning, specifically Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And if you know your gospels, you're thinking, oh my Christmas goodness, <laughs> OMCG. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, isn't that? Yep, you're right. The genealogy of Jesus. So do your best to listen. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and it really doesn't matter what version I read from because it's just a list of names, and I'll do my best to pronounce them, and if I don't, I'll act sure that my pronunciation is, is correct. I'm reading from the New International Version. Here's what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose wife had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Behud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. 
and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. And thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. <laughs> A lot of names, right? The genealogy of Jesus, and and kind of an odd genealogy because it goes to Joseph, and he he doesn't have anything other than being the the dad, not the biological dad, but being the father, the growing up father of Jesus. Those who have come before. Parents, grandparents, great and great, great grandparents. <laughs> I was thinking this week about Lynn's grandma. She died over a decade ago now at the age of 102. She was four years old when World War I hit, eight when the Spanish flu came about, 16 million people globally died in that war, another 30 to 50 million from the pandemic. I mean, can you imagine that? A string of about six Christmases that that was globally filled, filled, overwhelmingly filled with darkness and death. And in many ways, I could argue it's always been a weary world in need of joy. In the next 25 years, Lynn's grandmother, before she was out of her 30s, she would go through the Great Depression and another world war. And that's not all. I recently read a description of our country from the year 1903 on. So well, only 14% of the homes in the U.S. had a bathtub. 8% had a telephone. There are only 8,000 cars and 144 miles of paved road. I know if you live in Pennsylvania, you think that's actually pretty good. The average life expectancy was 47 years of age. 90% of all U.S. doctors had zero college education. And the five leading causes of death were pneumonia, the flu, tuberculosis, diarrhea, and heart disease. You know, today we find that weariness globally in places like Gaza and Israel and Myanmar and Iran and Afghanistan. But but even here, it's always been a weary world in need of the thrill of hope that brings joy. In America, we've had a, a stretch of years where at least some of us were able to convince ourselves we could manage the hard, keep it outside the circle of our comfort. But, but man, the last few years have reminded us that weary and hard is rarely more than a step away. And that's why I'm so drawn to hope so drawn to hope, this sense of expectancy. But when darkness comes, whether it's personal or global, whether it's a blackout of brokenness or an accumulation of just little disappointments, little pinpoints of darkness, when, when darkness unpacks its baggage for a season of uncertainty and loss, man, it's, it's hard. And we, we need to realize that this battle for hope is vital, but it, it's also common. It's common that there's a battle. Even, even Christ followers go through times when all they can say about hope is, once upon a time, we had hoped. That's pretty common. I can't help but think of the disciples who walked with Jesus after the cross and after the resurrection. They didn't know it was him. Remember that? They were walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem, but and Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, showed up and was walking with them, and, and they didn't realize it was him. And at one point, he asked them, what have you been discussing so intently as you walk along? And they said, you must be the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on. He was actually the only guy in Jerusalem who did know what was going on. And then they described Jesus to Jesus, and they ended with these words. Then they crucified him, but we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. So as they, they walk, they're processing what they've gone through from Jesus' triumphant Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem to Friday's darkness of death on the cross. They, they're discouraged and disappointed and sad because a cross has drained their hope. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped. 
I mean, can you relate to those three words? We had hope that our business would make it and we'd keep our jobs. We we had hope that our nation would come together. We'd hope that racial injustice would end in our generation. We had hope that our marriage would last, had hoped our child would follow Jesus, had hoped to be married with a family long before now. We had hoped that our church would be more like Jesus, but, but don't miss this. They had hoped, past tense, because they didn't know the full story, and neither do we. In fact, they have no idea how close Jesus is at this very moment of their darkest hopelessness. Do we? I mean, do we know, do you know how close Jesus is at this very moment? They don't know that God has already turned the page on a chapter they thought was the end of the story, but they didn't know the full story. They had an expectation of how life would be, what God would do, and that didn't happen, so they were disappointed. And and you know, I wonder if that's the dominant emotion of these last few years, disappointment. In fact, some sociologists suggest that disappointment is the primary American emotion at this moment. We we expected life to always be up and to the right, and, and it wasn't. And and even if if it is, social media reminds us every day that it's not as far up and to the right as somebody else. But what if disappointment is a good thing? I mean, what if disappointment is a signal from our soul that our hope is misplaced? What if our our disappointment is the gentle whisper of the Spirit of God inviting us to reset our hope? I mean, for a child of God adopted into the family by the gift of Jesus, to be constantly disappointed might be a sign that our hope is misplaced. And what if what if the next chapter of God's story for you requires a resetting of your hope? God's story for us requires a resetting of our hope, not, not putting hope in our progress or the economy or politics or even education or or good old american ingenuity but a full reset we see we need to reset our hope on the heart and hand of god reset our hope in his story the story that tells us that no matter how hard or how good this chapter of life may be the best is yet to come so for the next few moments i, I just i want us to see that from that from beginning to end, the story of God, and in this case, the Christmas story of Jesus, it's a story of hope. And, and I just want to do that by taking a, a few minute, minutes to look at our broken Christmas tree. Now, I'm not talking about a crooked Fraser fir or a Charlie Brown tree. We're talking genealogy, family tree. And be honest, when you read Matthew's Christmas story, you start at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. We, we, we skipped the first 17 verses. We skipped the Christmas family tree. Uh, I mean, Luke has a genealogy, but he doesn't lead with it. It's buried in chapter 3 after the beautiful baby Jesus birth stories. But Matthew leads with the begats, <laughs> with the genealogy. In Matthew 1, 1 through 17, it's a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He says, that man, that'll sell. And to be honest, it kind of gets worse because it's not just boring, it's kind of broken. I mean, especially if you're a Jewish person, Matthew was written specifically to the Jewish people of Jesus' day. And if you're a Jewish person, you you read this genealogy and you think, oh my goodness, how did God do that through them? You know, I, I look back on my family tree and there's Uncle Ernest got hit by lightning twice, was never quite the same after that. And Uncle Oscar, when he was 80, he was driving in a demolition derby. Only problem was nobody else on the road knew it was a demolition derby. He lived with his sister, Anna, all their lives. She was a hoarder. (laughs) I could tell you about Big Grandpa. He rode the rails, ate supper around fires with hobos, and lived for too much of his life, the life of an alcoholic. 
But man, few of my stories would match the ones found under Christ's family tree. It's just not what we would expect from Jesus' family tree. But but let me back up a moment because actually it's not all that surprising that Matthew begins with a family tree. His primary audience, like I said, was Jewish and genealogies mattered, mattered deeply to them. Kings had to prove their bloodline to demonstrate a rightful claim to the throne. Priests had to trace their heritage back to Levi. Genealogies helped to determine who was in and who was out. And Jews kept their genealogies with remarkable accuracy. And it's interesting. There's no record of anyone ever disputing Christ's genealogy. He's a son of Abraham of the line of David. But Christ's family tree is not just a genealogy. It's a theological statement giving shape to the story of the grace of God. It's a genealogy that's filled with hope because of the names it contains. For example, verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Their mother was Tamar. Now, let's be honest. Both Abraham and Jacob mentioned in verse 2 had a character that could have led to being canceled in today's culture. But Judah and Tamar, my goodness. In Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar were the father and mother of Perez, but Judah was also Tamar's father-in-law. He didn't realize he had slept with Tamar because she disguised herself as a prostitute, which she had done because her husband had died and Judah wasn't willing to care for her like he should have. I mean, their story is a soap opera of gross sin and dysfunctional family dynamics. And then we go to verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, and his mother was Rahab. Boaz was the mother of Obed, and his mother was Ruth. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Typically, Jewish genealogies would not include women. But Matthew lists five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, you may remember Rahab from the story of Joshua. She was the Canaanite owner of a brothel in Jericho. (laughs) But something in her spirit recognized that the God of Israel was God, and her life was redeemed. In fact, so redeemed that she ends up in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11. Now, Ruth, on the other hand, other hand was an amazing woman. Not many women have a whole book of the Bible. Her story is one of loyalty, faith, and sacrificial commitment to family. And like her mother-in-law, Rahab, she became part of Jesus' Christmas tree. But, But here's kind of what's fascinating. Not only were women rarely listed in genealogies, these women were outsiders. They were foreigners, a Canaanite and a Moabite. I mean, they were not even allowed into the temple. Spiritually, they lived in the margins of, of, the, of religion all their life. And then we go to verse 6. In verse 6, we're reminded that the person who was called a man with a heart after God was also a man who committed adultery and had a woman's husband murdered, David and Bathsheba. You remember that story. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. His mother was... Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And then finally, in in verses 8 through 10, we have a list of despicable kings. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. I mean, Jehoram, his tombstone read simply, Jehoram reigned in Jerusalem for eight years, and to no one's sorrow he died. Ahaz and Manasseh had the distinction of leading their nation into child sacrifice practices. Manasseh practiced witchcraft and and shed so much innocent blood that it said Jerusalem was filled with it. I mean, I mean, doesn't it make you wonder? Surely, God, you could have chosen better, but He didn't. 
So what does Jesus' Christmas family tree tell us about hope? Well, first of all, God's hope overcomes failure, betrayal, and family dysfunction. God can use anyone. God's not limited by evil or failure. Jesus is still king of the kingdom. Your life, your genealogy does not change that one bit. Maybe you can relate to the family dysfunction of Judah and Tamar. Like David, you were there when lust was unleashed. Maybe like Bathsheba, something was done to you or by someone who had power over you, and now your soul seems scarred by shame. Maybe you have a Rahab secret you'd rather nobody knew. Man, God's hope is greater. Your life is not without hope. Hope is not reserved for those who never fail in it, and it's not in limited supply for those who do. Christmas hope reminds us that your past cannot steal God's future. Christmas reminds us that even though we have a past, God's still given us a place. Jesus is for us in our brokenness. He's, he, he's not keeping his distance from your past or shaking his head at your damaged heart. For some of us, that's difficult to believe. The story, the narrative that you keep repeating does not leave many p- pages for God with us in our mess. But I'm telling you, there he is. Emmanuel, God with us is not just a clever theological name for Jesus. It's a GPS for hope. God is with you. God is with you. In all the mess and the brokenness, God is with you. In all the hurt and the pain, God is with you. In all the sin and the failure, he's with you. Let hope arise. Don't miss this. Tell yourself this Christmas truth over and over in the days to come. Even though I have a past, God has not canceled my hope. In fact, let me take it even a step deeper. Oftentimes, Christmas hope is conceived through the most improbable of people, for the most unlovable of people. I mean, Jesus' family tree is filled with people who hurt other people, people who cheated on their wives, betrayed their most loyal friends, sacrificed their children in pits of fire, missed their divine moments to do good. Jesus' family tree is filled with people who, when they died, no one cried. It's almost as though God wants us to know there are no no no-hope people. I can work through anyone and everyone. Some of God's best hope stories are written in the margins of life. Jesus knows you and every part of your family tree. Jesus loves you and everyone in your family tree, upstream and down. And because he does, there is hope. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that for each and every one of us listening, regardless of of who's been in our family tree, regardless of our place in that heritage, that lineage, regardless of what comes after us. God, you you have an ability, an opportunity to work in the lives of each one of us. God, our past does not prevent us from having hope for the future. Our past has not canceled our future. And God, I'm, I'm so grateful that you show us that you were able to use Man, a ragamuffin, ragtag group of people in order to bring Jesus onto the scene. God, thank you for working through us and for us and around us and in us. Your work is amazing. And I pray that this Christmas we would have that sense, the sense that Christmas is really an amazing reminder of the grace and the mercy of God. Thank you for all these things. Thank you for our grandparents and great-grandparents and our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. God, would you bless us and use us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.